Good morning, Grace City Church, and good morning to all of our guests joining us online this morning. Uh, my name is Matt Hand, pastor at Grace City, coming to you from downtown Denver. Uh, today, we're looking at the seventh and final in our series, Countercultural. And I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at an overview this morning of Jesus' most famous sermon, where he kind of overviews a comprehensive glimpse of what it looks like to live as a countercultural city set on a hill that can't be hidden. So we'll be back there in Matthew 5 in a few moments. One of my favorite songs from the hit Broadway musical Hamilton is a song entitled, What Comes Next? And it's a, it's a funny song where the comedic character, King George III, shows up after the Revolutionary War and he's kind of taunting, fledgling America with these words. He says, what comes next? You've been freed. Do you know how hard it is to lead? You're on your own, awesome, wow. Do you have a clue what happens now? Oceans rise, empires fall. It's much harder when it's all your call. A more recent social experiment in Seattle was this thing called CHAZ. You know, it started out as Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. It's quickly it became known as CHOP, the Capitol Hill Organized Protest. If you don't know, this is where a group of protesters, some would say anarchists, essentially took over six blocks around the East Precinct of the Seattle Police Department and declared themselves independent from the United States and began making a list of demands. Declaring themselves anti-fascists and demanding the defunding of the Seattle Police Department they immediately somehow mounted their own armed militia. You know, ranting and raving against Trump's wall, they immediately erected barricades around their six blocks and controlled who was coming and who was going from their autonomous zone. Condemning oppression, they looted and literally destroyed the small businesses that were within their own district. Within days, CHOP became known less for an experiment in autonomy and they became known for violence and sexual assault and violent crime and even murder. So this experiment that started in June 8th was pushed out by the government on July 1st and not only was it a colossal failure, but it was also one of the most ironic failures in recent memory. My question is, what do these two illustrations have in common? King George comes back, taunts the United States, great, you've won a war, you've kicked this out. What are you gonna do now? Or a group of protesters in one of our urban zones in the United States kicks out the government and says, we're gonna rule now, and yet seems to have an almost impossible time of doing so. What do these illustrations have in common? I think they point out the reality that it's easy to take a critical stance toward the existing culture. It is it's very simple to just deconstruct and cancel and rebel against what other people are doing with their authority. You know what's much harder is coming up with good ideas, 
workable ideas to replace them. Anybody can be critical, critical or negative. What's harder is providing a better and viable alternative. On an individual level, most of you, all of you, probably know the perpetual critic, right? Maybe this is a coworker, or maybe it's an extended family member. But you know, whenever you're in conversation with the perpetual critic, that they are against everything. They say no to everything. They are opposed to all change, but they're also opposed to the status quo in any kind of discussion. They're just negative, right? And if you were to say, hey, perpetual critic, so I see you're against this, what's your idea? And you, you come to find very quickly, they don't have any ideas, none. They have no ideas of how to do things differently or better. They have no suggestions. That's not their point. Their point is merely to criticize. Okay. Well, today, as we wrap up this seven part series, Counterculture, I want to end on a positive note. And I want to talk about building a kingdom culture. Now, I've been saying all along that when I use the term counter culture, I do not mean and I am not implying that Christians are merely against culture, counter, you know, contrarian and, and, and belligerent. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we are negative. I'm, I'm not saying we're complaining. Yes, there are many things in society that we all observe that they are broken. They are violent. They are objectively evil. They are false. And we do confront and we do oppose those things because those things only hurt and can never heal. But we're not called to be belligerent or bellicose by God. That is not what we mean by being countercultural. And I think I want to begin today with just this observation that I fear Christians and the Christian church are often viewed by culture at large as just being against. They're against this, they're against that, they're against this other thing. They don't like where we're at, but they don't like where we're going. And we're just known as being against, the whole list of things that we're against, that we say no to. And it's very less common for Christians to be known and identified by what we are for, right? And this is actually your point number one this morning is the need to recognize the problem. Okay, so when I'm talking about building a kingdom culture, we need to recognize that Christian culture has a problem, that believers, that followers of Jesus have a problem, a very concerning thing that is habitual sometimes, and that is we're very good at saying, stop that, don't do that. You know, that's wrong, that's false, that's bad. But what positive alternative have we identified? What positive, uh, what positive alternative have we provided and even begun living out in front of the rest of culture? What better vision for society have we presented, have we embodied, so that as other people with other worldviews look at us, they may actually think, wow, like that's actually really thoughtful and beautiful, and loving, and good. Andy Crouch, who writes the book Culture Making, notes, 
Are we known as critics, consumers, copiers, condemners of culture? I'm afraid so. Why aren't we known as cultivators? People who tend and nourish what is best in human culture, who do the hard and painstaking work to preserve the best of what people before us have done. Why aren't we known as creators? People who dare to think and do something that has never been thought or done before, something that makes the world more welcoming and thrilling and beautiful. And my first point here is simply, it is not sufficient to simply criticize and tear down what's wrong about culture. Jesus, in his most famous sermon, is calling us to build, to cultivate, to invest in what's good. So look with me at Matthew chapter 5 through 7 this morning. Jesus' most famous sermon It's called the Sermon on the Mount very often because the first verse basically begins seeing the crowds. He went up to a mountain and when he sat down, his disciples, that's just his followers, came to him. And then he said, here's what life in my kingdom looks like. Okay, and near the beginning of this this most famous sermon, he speaks these words beginning in verse 14. He says to his followers, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill, cannot be hidden. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, what Jesus is talking about is the darkness has always been a metaphor for things that are negative. You know, ignorance, doubt, fear, hopelessness, pain, brokenness, even death. And when Jesus is coming to his followers, when he's coming to what is going to become his church, and he says, you are the light. Well, what is he saying, friends, except to say you are to embody the positive counter to fear and ignorance and hopelessness and darkness and brokenness. You are to embody hope, truth. You know, light is guidance to people. Light is Life, safety, joy. And Jesus says, you're like a city set on a hill. You're like an alternate city in every city. We, we right here parked on the corner of Broadway and Park Avenue, seeking to shine a light into our culture, into the brokenness, saying, yeah, you know what? We are broken too, but we're not simply going to despair and condemn and criticize and grovel and rail. We are going to build something on this corner and through our vocations and through our families and through our network of relationships, something that embodies the words and the character and the hope and the love of Jesus. Amen. So here's your one big idea this morning. Instead of merely cursing the darkness of culture, which is easy to do, but instead of merely cursing the darkness of culture, Be a light that follows and points to Jesus. Okay, that brings us to point two, build your life around King Jesus. If I were to say, how do I do what you just said? Okay, so I recognize the problem with just being against, just being negative, just being critical. But Matt, how would I participate in the building or the cultivation of a different kind of culture that embodies the character of Jesus. 
And that's why I say it begins by building your life upon, around, in the person of Jesus Christ. See, at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, you turn back one chapter, chapter four, at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus announces, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's not saying I'm a rival kingdom in a geographic or in a political sense, but what he's saying is, I the king, King Jesus, I'm here. And so what that means is the rule and the reign of God is present, okay? He's come with the authority to teach us what to believe, how to determine right and wrong, what to prioritize, how to invest our precious resources of time and money and talents, because he's God. He's the king. So building a kingdom culture starts with building our lives around Jesus, trusting Jesus, hoping in Jesus, and letting him tell us what to believe, what to think, what to prioritize with our lives, okay? This is what it looks like to live in apprenticeship to Jesus of Nazareth. Now, before you just say, I'm not willing to do that as maybe a seeker, I mean, I want religion, I want something transcendent, something not time-bound, something that's not getting broken like everything else right now, but I don't want that. I want us to realize just just a quick series of things, and that is, number one, realize that everyone has a faith. Every single person has a whole series of things that they believe, that they accept on faith that cannot be proven to them. Everyone. And those who think they have no faith at all have tremendous faith because they've chosen to believe, I don't believe in God, maybe I believe in myself, maybe I believe in a political figure, maybe I believe in financial security. But everyone believes, like, this is where I came from, this is how I determine right and wrong, this is where I'm ultimately headed when I die, and here's how I think I know those things. We all have faith. Everyone also has a method of determining right from wrong. We all have some kind of standard of morality and ethics, and and the worst person in the world has something about which they say, I don't think this other stuff is wrong, but I know that's wrong. Everyone is determining that somehow. Everyone has priorities. Number three, We all have things that we think are unimportant and we all have things that we think are super, super important, that they're significant, that they're worth investing in. Everyone has opinions. Everyone feels like their opinions are certainly the correct opinions, okay? Now, here's an important question. About your beliefs and your idea of morality and your opinions and your perspectives and your priorities, the question is, Who taught you to think and believe those things? Who taught you that? Okay, and I know immediately there's going to be some pushback here because some independent-minded people are going to think to themselves, what are you talking about? What do you mean, who taught me to believe this way or who taught me to think this way? Nobody taught me to believe or think this way. You know, I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I make my own choices and my own decisions. I choose my beliefs. I choose my facts, okay? And I don't doubt that it feels that way to you. But no one is an island. 
as John Donne said. No one is just this free-floating collection only of their own beliefs and opinions and ideas. The reality is all of us have mentors and influencers and voices that have shaped our thinking and our believing. The question is, who is that person or who are those people to you? Who is that decisive validator, to use Tim Keller's term, who tells you that you have the right set of beliefs and opinions so that you feel you have worth and significance, you've landed on the right things? Because here's what I'm getting at. You'll all either build your life around King Jesus or you will build your life around other kings and lords and gods. Either Jesus will shape your beliefs and your faith or someone else will. Either Jesus will shape and determine how you decide this is right and this is wrong or someone else will. Either Jesus shapes your opinions, your priorities, or someone else will. Now this is important. Being a kingdom culture and building a kingdom culture doesn't just mean standing back and just railing at everything that's against the way of Jesus, every, everything you think is contrary to the way things ought to be. Let me just give you a quick, quick three-step process about how I think we build a Jesus-focused, Jesus-founded culture that is countercultural. Okay? This involves, number one, identifying who or what is influencing our thinking. Number two, recognizing the underlying kings and gods of our culture that are feeding into that thing. And then number three, just saying, I shift my fundamental allegiance from those things to Jesus, period. Okay, let me flesh that out real quick for you, okay? So I say, identify who or what, number one, is influencing your thinking, now, there's this classic parable that talks about how the fish doesn't realize that it's swimming in water because water is all it's ever known, right? It's not thinking like, oh yeah, this is water, and that, that up there is air, and you know, there, there's these other things. No, it's just because that is the fish's situation in life, and it's all it's ever known, it doesn't realize like, oh, this is my environment that is shaping me. Well, the same is true of every human being, that our own you know, situation in life, our own family of origin is a huge one that has influenced every single one of you, whether you were raised in a home, in a very, maybe a very strict home or a very lenient home, or whether you were kicked out of that home, whether you don't even know your birth parents, these things have a significant impact on your thinking. The first thing that I think that is heavily, heavily influencing our thinking is simply pop culture, because that is the water that we swim in. The music, the things on television, the things that come through our smartphone screens, the things that we're hearing constantly that, that we, we, we may even think we've completely tuned them out and they are not affecting us, have a massive cumulative effect on us because we're swimming in pop culture. You know, additionally, public education or whatever alternative maybe that you have personally experienced or have chosen for your kids has a massive impact on your thinking because no teacher is simply teaching the subject material. They are simultaneously, whether they're doing it intentionally or unintentionally, they are simultaneously teaching their version of morality. They're teaching their worldview. They're teaching beliefs. 
And through public education, or as I say, if you have an alternative education, you are being thoroughly catechized in the belief of something, in some view of right and wrong, in some view that this is really important and we should be talking about this and, you know, don't worry about that stuff, okay? Another one is your peers, your peer group, whether in an educational environment, a family environment, a neighborhood environment, or a vocational environment. Your peers have a massive cumulative effect on what you're thinking, okay? So let's just identify these things and recognize they are influencing the way I think, okay? Then I said, secondly, then recognize the underlying kings or gods that our culture serves that is feeding into those things. So, for example, identity or expressive individualism is a huge king of our culture. Freedom or autonomy is a king of our culture. Equality right now is a king of our culture. Happiness is a king of our culture. And I say that these things are kings, and I'm using that word, and I know that sounds odd, but I'm saying that because these are things that people just serve with their lives, with their time, with their money. They sacrifice for these things. They, they if not literally, they at least figuratively bow to these things and almost worship these things and give them blind obedience. But then I say, thirdly, shift that fundamental allegiance from that king, from that Lord, from that God to King Jesus. So you take something like identity and you say, I know it could rule me. I know it could be king of my life, but I refuse to define myself in terms of my personal performance or my achievement, whether my achievement's very, very traditional or very, very liberal or progressive. I am at the core who God says I am. That's what I mean by rooting my identity in Jesus Christ, not in culture. You know, freedom, I would say, yeah, my freedoms ultimately come from God. Like we say in our founding documents, these inalienable rights come from our creator, you know, there, there's no government authority who can tell you, hey, we give you this right, or we ultimately defend this right, or we take this right from you, because you have a creator God who fashioned you in his image, who says, this right to life, this freedom is a gift from me because I am good to you. You know, equality, the, the understanding, I am not more important, but I am not less important than the next person, regardless of race or ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, where, where I was born, what neighborhood or zip code I live in, what my vocation is, I matter to God. I am equal before God. And happiness, you know, just the ability to say, God intends my joy. We're going to see this in just a moment as you jump into chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount. God wants you to be happy. He says, blessed are these kinds of people. I want you to be blessed. I want you to experience welfare and prosperity in a real sense. But friends, Epicureanism will not be our God. This is not the king that we serve where we're like, oh no, life is all about avoiding pain and risk. You know, and, and, and we determine the things that bring risk or potential harm, like to my physical body, those are evil, those are bad. And, and that is not a Christian worldview. That is an Epicurean worldview, okay? The reason that we can love one another and take risks for the sake of the kingdom of God is because we're not serving the king of happiness. And we realize all true and final and ultimate joy that Jesus came to bring us 
comes through a relationship with him. Okay, so let me just review. I'm saying re recognize the problem, number one, that Christians have a tendency to just be against a whole bunch of stuff and nobody knows what we're for. Number two, so the solution to that is to begin to build your life around Jesus. But then thirdly, simply follow the way of Jesus. There is not a, a, a I don't wanna say easier way. It's not like it's easy, but there's not a simpler way to understand what a kingdom culture is and then to embody that kingdom culture than to simply say, my life, how I view myself is that I am in apprenticeship to Jesus. And when he says, come this way, walk this way, follow me, I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. And that's why I love this Sermon on the Mount that I directed you to this morning. I love this three chapters and I'm back in these three chapters more than any other text of scripture because it is here that Jesus comes bursting on the scene and he tells all his would-be followers, here is what life in my kingdom looks like. Okay, so, so just quickly, let me just overview this with you. Chapter five, verses two through 11, often called the Beatitudes. And Jesus is just coming saying, you wanna, you wanna be happy? You wanna be deeply and forever satisfied? Well, culture comes along and says, then you gotta live for yourself. You gotta be in control of your life. You know, sexual freedom and financial freedom. You gotta pursue the American dream. You gotta cancel people who make you angry and afraid. You know, cast off all restraint and you do you, but make sure you're doing it the way that progressive culture is telling you to or the traditional culture is telling you to. And Jesus says, no, blessed are these kinds of people, happy are these kinds of people and said, and if you just skim those verses, I want you to see that he puts a premium on attributes of humility and gentleness and mercy and peacemaking. He's saying, you want to be happy, you want to experience extreme joy, be a humble person who's a debtor to grace and just therefore enjoys everything that God gives you and fills your poor spirit with. Going on, verses 13 through 16, Jesus comes and says, let me give you an identity. You're salt, you're light, you're a city set on the hill. You, you are not who culture defines you to be. You're not the sum total of your successes and failures. I by free grace, define your identity. This is who you are, and you will find contentment in living out the reality of who you are. Verses 21 to 26, Jesus comes right back and says, you've got to learn to let go of your anger. You've got to be non-retaliatory forgivers and reconcilers and peacemakers. And a key attribute of this kingdom is that instead of just turning on people and getting angry at and canceling and being bitter against people who have hurt you, he says, you, you basically, you're turning the other cheek and you're saying, Lord, have I forgiven them in my heart? Have I made peace? Verses 27 through 32, he switches gears again and he says, you, 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 you've got to walk this kingdom ethic that looks at the massive topic of sexuality and marriage and family and treat those things with the honor and the dignity and the purity that they deserve in the way that I've created them to function. Verses 33 through 37, he says, comes right back to you. You've got to live a life of honesty and integrity. Verses 38 through 48, he comes back to this non-retaliatory thing. Like even if your enemies are coming to you and abusing you and lying about you and persecuting you, he says, you love your enemies. 
and seek their good. On to chapter 6, 6, 1 through 18. Jesus goes into the section on prayer and fasting and some of these, what we would call today, maybe spiritual disciplines. And the important point here is he's like, if you want to build a kingdom ethic, you are not practicing prayer and fasting and giving and generosity and things like that just for the sake of making a name for yourself or just to check a box and be like, wow, look at my performance. He says, all of these come from a pure heart that's been rescued and regenerated by God. It's been restored And so these actions of of spiritual discipline overflow from the abundance of a heart that's been set on fire with passion for Jesus Christ. Verses 19 through 24, he goes on to say, now here's a section on living in light of eternity. Don't just lay up treasures here on earth where stuff comes in and destroys it and takes it. And that's how everybody's living, the American dream. I've got to to use all my money, all my time, all my abilities. and, And if it doesn't work for me, then I'm not doing it. Jesus says, you want to be counterculture, lay up treasures in heaven. Use your money, your time, your abilities, and leverage them to invest in things that look like Jesus. Verses 25 through 34, this important topic we talked about a number of weeks ago, just pursuing this non-anxious presence of just saying, Lord, I am not in control, but you are in control. I'm not going to get all worked up over this. I'm going to keep checking my heart and repenting of things like anxiety and fear and paranoia so that I can be a non-anxious presence as your spirit lives in me. On to chapter seven, verses one through six. He says, you know what? Instead of obsessing over the sins and the brokenness of other people, which is what everybody in culture does, whether they're traditional or liberal, he says, why don't you deal with your own brokenness first? Why don't you focus on your own sin and confess that and repent of that and invite God's help by faith into the interior of your being so that you can be a transformed person to now go and help others. Focus on your own sin first. Seven, verses seven through 11, he says, hope in God. At the bedrock, there's just this confidence that, you know what, God will protect me. God will provide what I need. Verse 12, the standalone, we call it the golden rule, right? Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. If you want someone treating you a certain way, then just a simple principle of love and kindness to live by is I'm going to treat other people the way that I wish they treated me. And how different would our culture be if we just simply did that one thing? I don't like it when people lie about me. I don't like it when people criticize me without knowing what I actually did to begin with. I don't like it when people steal from me. I don't like it when people set up one-sided deals that are not fair to either one of us because it's crazy generous to them and it just rips me off or or vice versa. So that's how you treat people. And then let me just wrap up 7, 13 through 27. Jesus goes right back to don't live this life of performance and externals like, ooh, can I put on a good facade to convince people that I'm a certain way? He says, basically, just abide in me. You know, let my spirit bear fruit in you and through you because you are connected to me by faith, not by your performance, but by the grace I've come to give you, okay? And and, and by the way, what is Jesus doing here as you actually read this three-chapter amazing layout of this is what kingdom culture life looks like? What's he doing when time and again he says, you have heard it say, said, You have heard it said, 
People are telling you, but I say unto you, is he's actually doing a form of counterkesis. Okay? He's saying the world and culture, even religious culture, has catechized you. They have told you what to believe, what to think, what's right and wrong, where you're headed when you die, what you prioritize, how you spend your time, how you spend your money. But I say to you, with all the authority of God come in the flesh, he's doing counterkesis. He's saying, here's what corresponds to reality. And I just want you to imagine with me in closing this kind of culture, a kingdom culture being lived out. And again, as I stand here, I, I don't mean at all in isolation from our, like let's erect our own barricades, either literal or at least figurative, and kind of wall ourselves off from the city and we're like, oh, we're this little enclave. No, because Jesus calls us to the opposite. You embody this counter, distinctive, unique, Christ-like culture, but you don't do it in isolation from culture, culture. You do it interacting with and lived out right in front of culture, saying, as I stand on this corner, like, I am unashamed of Jesus, Son of God, my Lord and Savior. I'm not ashamed to walk his path. As, as outdated, as close-minded as some of those things that he said seem because this is what actually corresponds to reality and this is what true love looks like. Can you even imagine the results of a culture, even like our own one church, just saying that is how we are determined to live, God helping us. I think what we see is something very much like 1 Peter 2.12, where Peter says, even as the culture speaks out against you, blasphemes you, slanders you, lies about you, says that's your beliefs are disgusting, how hateful. Then at the end of the day, Peter says, but they're looking and they're like, that's actually beautiful. That's actually really good. That actually is true. Meaning, again, it, it corresponds to reality in a way that none of our own beliefs and thinking do. So again, that one big idea, instead of merely cursing the darkness of culture, be a light that follows and that points to Jesus. And join us back here for our q and I'd love to go through a couple scenarios. Like, how do we do this with COVID right now? How do we do this with, like, Black Lives Matter right now, with a presidential election coming up and all the tension there? How do we do that with something like politics? How do we do that in vocation, in our relationships, in our parenting, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our pursuit of people that have deeply, deeply hurt us? Let's talk about that in our Q&A. But instead of merely cursing the darkness... Live this life of faith that says, Jesus, I want to be a light that reflects your light as I follow you and as I point people in hope to you as their own Lord and Savior who can rescue and heal and restore them as well. Let's go on this journey of building a kingdom culture together.